Hi, everyone. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. We're incredibly proud of the fantasy which builds on the creativity, innovation, and artistry, which are the hallmarks of not only the Walt Disney Cruise Line, but of the Walt Disney Company. to play, just push my nose. WDW Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 632, and together we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more as I take you from the parks to the screens and everything in between here on the podcast, my weekly live video on Facebook every Wednesday night, community books, audio tours, blog, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts and find everything else at www.radio.com. When Michael Eisner and Frank Wells ushered in the Disney decade in 1990, they did so with the promise of unmatched expansion in the Disney parks and resorts. And while many of the announcements came to be, there were also many that never made it off the drawing board or in some cases, past the scale models. This week, we'll look at the many attractions, shows, resorts, and unique offerings that were never realized in the parks including some incredible concepts you've probably never heard of before. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show for more information, updates, and your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. It's said that no good idea at Walt Disney Imagineering ever dies. And I believe that that's actually true. Maybe they don't actually die. They're just resting their eyes. But unfortunately, there have been many wonderful ideas that will likely never come to pass in the Disney parks around the world, including Walt Disney World. And in fact, during the Disney decade that began in 1990, then-CEO Michael Eisner and President Frank Wells announced many plans to expand the Walt Disney World theme parks in a variety of ways and locations. Some came to fruition, others did not. So this week, we're going to look at the unrealized Walt Disney World attractions of the Disney decade. And joining me once again is theme park history aficionado and longtime member of the WW Radio blogging team, Kendall Foreman. Wow, aficionado, that's a that's a generous name. I was gonna say, I think um, maybe I'm getting myself in a typecasted hole here where I come on to talk about unrealized projects. <laughs> well, you remember from Kendall from such shows at 603 and 604, the things you can't ever believe happened in Walt Disney World, 589, the Disney MGM backlot in Burbank that never was, and show 558, 
the unbuilt Disney parks. And I think this show, Kendall, is actually going to combine a lot of elements from each of those because we're going to discuss things that were never built and never were and some that maybe we can't even ever believe were in the works at all. Yeah, I mean, and definitely a lot of those crazy things from our you can't believe it ever happened came from the 90s. So a lot of these things fit right in with that. And I think you even will see some overlap with some of those projects that we talked about on the other two episodes where you can kind of see some ideas that maybe didn't happen with those that they tried to resurrect for the Disney decade and then still didn't quite work out or maybe shifted into something else. Yeah, and and just as a quick refresher in terms of what the Disney decade was, I would first direct you back to show 426, where on our Walt Disney World Wayback Machine, we go into very deep detail into exactly what the Disney decade was. But when you hear Disney decade, uh, if you know anything about it, the first name that comes to mind in Michael Eisner, who I have said for years is, you know, the one person I would really love to, especially now that he's been gone from the company for so long, who I would love to interview on the show, because I think for a lot of people, he was remembered for how he left rather than what he did and the incredible positive changes he made while he was there and really so much that he did to save the company. But as Part of his plans in the early 1990s, uh, Eisner and Wells set out to create what they entitled the Disney Decade and to include new parks around the world, expand on the existing parks, a lot of investment in new media that would pay dividends for years and decades down the road. And in his in the company's 1990 annual report, uh, they called Building a Dream Together, which is exactly what Eisner and Wells did together. They talked about how the plans would touch every aspect of the company, from hotels to attractions to a new theme park here in Walt Disney World, the largest expansion of Disneyland in history. And it's funny, Kendall, because he even said in the in the annual report that some people might even think that we're being overly ambitious and we don't think so we have a lot of confidence in achieving the mission that they set out for in the next 10 years and they did i mean they really did do and and grow a lot you know what we let's talk about some of the things we did get right we got the swan and dolphin yacht and beach club honey i shrunk the kids movie set adventure muppet vision 3d beauty and the beast stage show Splash Mountain, Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, Blizzard Beach, the new Tomorrowland in 95, the Cinderella Castle makeover at, in 96, Downtown Disney changed its name in 97, Animal Kingdom opened in 98, and then Fantasmic opened later on in that same year. Um, and, you know, again, th- there was a lot of details of some of the things that, that did come to pass as well as between this and and a few other documents that were released, there were discussions and even press releases about other attractions and expansions, both in and outside of the parks that Eisner and Wells and the company had, you know, sort of laser focus on for those 10 years. Yeah. I mean, they even, they held a press conference, right? Following the grand opening of the Walt Disney World Swan, the Swan and Star Tours both opened right close together there in January of 1990. And that next day, um, Michael Eisner spoke there at the Swan about all of these plans and really specifically mentioned 
uh, several of the things that we're going to talk about, several of the things you mentioned that did come to pass, but specifically mentioned some things and said, we, we intend to build everything that we're going to talk about today. And it kind of looking back, it feels like one of those moments of don't tell God your plans. <laughs> because he says, he says in there, we intend to build everything we're going to talk about, you know, barring an economic downturn. And Unfortunately, you know, as we talk about some of these things, we'll, we might reference some of the issues that the company had with a few, uh, few other projects that were going on at the time. And then just in the nation as a whole, you're, you know, you're looking at the time period of the Gulf War and a recession that occurred. And so, you know, it, some people might look back and think, well, like, you know, you did a really good job there. You really built all that stuff you promised. But, um, you know, he, he put that caveat on it. And even like now we're looking at some of the things that Disney mentioned, even at the last D23 convention that really seemed like definites and you don't know what the world has in store for you and how those plans might change. Yeah. Because, you know, we'll talk about things and, and we'll be very clear. Some things that were, were very much rumored, but there were more that were not just in the, uh, the 1990 annual report, but uh, if you remember the old uh, Epcot outreach center, in, uh, in Future World and Epcot, you could go and there was uh, information that was available in the form of, of press releases and newsletters and handouts. And there's actually a, a document that they released called the Walt Disney World, Re Walt Disney World Resort Expansion Projects, uh, which is probably a, looks like it's a, about a 10 or 11 page uh, handout that was things that were going on and some of the developments that were supposed to come to pass in the years to come. So we'll use sort of those as reference materials as Kendall holds her up. Um, I love the fact that you're like such a deep researcher too. Um, and, and sort of go through park by park really. And even before I think we get into the theme parks, let's sort of start outside because one of the things we mentioned in terms of that did happen in the Disney decade was the expansion of resorts uh, in Walt Disney World. And with the ones that we got, there were actually plans for additional resorts as well. Yeah, I think actually very first, I might go with one that was planned that we got, but what the original plans were, were very different from what we got, which, and that would be the boardwalk. Um, what we have today is a hotel that includes a number of typical deluxe level hotel rooms and then obviously now the DVC villas with that but originally that was supposed to be an all-suite luxury hotel with just 530 units which that will be a theme we hear across almost all of the different resorts that were planned during this time period as far as the ones that we didn't get the resorts that we did get from that decade um, a lot of them were moderates and values and I think we'll see as we go why that happened but with the boardwalk, they planned for those luxury units because at the time, that was what customers were wanting. At the end of the 80s, heading into the beginning of the 90s, that's what they, you know, I don't know if they did surveys or polls or what the situation was, but you hear that across the board that what people were looking for was this more high-end luxury, even more so than the Grand Floridian that had just opened. And then not only was there going to be those high-end units, there was going to be the boardwalk like what we have today, but it was going to be somewhat different. Um, if you watch back in the 90s, there would be these little uh, clips on the Disney Channel called Dateline Walt Disney World. And the one from 1990 included a model for the boardwalk 
And you can see in there, there was a roller coaster in the model, like a Coney Island style roller coaster. And then also they mentioned that there would have been uh, a large Ferris wheel, which seems to be a theme across anything that Michael Eisner had going on during the 90s that there needed to be a Ferris wheel involved. And then also an antique carousel. And um, there also is mentioned in that media release that you talked about that there would have been a 900 seat theater with a show based specifically on Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid. So they were looking at dinner theater um, and the opportunities there with that. And then there was going to be another 350 seat theater with a show that was yet to be determined. So you do kind of wonder if one of those may be morphed into what we have today with the Atlantic Dance Hall or some of the other portions of the boardwalk. Yeah, back in on uh, show 313, we did a, a very in-depth look at Disney's boardwalk and Luna Park and the promenade and what might have come to that area um, with the pool area and some of the shows that you mentioned. Again, that 900-seat under-the-sea theater, the family reunion was going to be that environmental I'm quoting the environmental theater dinner show that involves guests as part of the show when the cast sits with them. And then as part of a possible expansion phase, the, it was just called Disney magic where it's magic with the Disney characters in a dinner show type format. So those, those plans were supposed to be obviously much grander because I think the idea and we'll talk about something else. So it's supposed to come a very unique idea. that was supposed to come to that area <laughs> later on that boardwalk was not just going to be a place to stay and dine, but to play as well and almost be kind of a mini, a, a mini park um, and, and more of a destination than just a place that you would visit and pop in and out of. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember um, as I was doing this, I remember watching on one of our trips, uh, the boardwalk across Crescent Lake, you could see it being built and wondering what that's going to be. And and I think even at that point in time, there may have been, uh, you know, kind of a pause in what they were doing and what they were deciding to do with that resort. Yeah. And, and there's there's a little bit of concept art out there, but it would be very interesting to see exactly what those plans might have actually um, ended up being. Um, in terms of some of the other resorts that were planned to come, uh, one of the one slash two that is intriguing, and, and we've touched on a number of times in the past as we've talked about the history of the attraction themselves, but there was supposed to be not one, but two Hollywood-style hotels, each containing a 1,000 rooms, and one Disney called the Hollywood Horror Hotel that would include a Tower of Terror. And as according to the press release, guests were going to be able to tour the hotel's odd and eerie rooms, corridors, boiler rooms, and other haunts before making their very quick exit on its free-falling service elevator. And I think this goes back to the idea of the Hollywood Tower Hotel being a real working hotel. There were some deep storylines that involved you being transported from Orlando International Airport via a special vehicle with sort of blacked out curtain covered windows that would really immerse you into the story. And it would be part attraction, part very well themed hotel going on a haunted Hollywood 
um, idea. There was also the Mel Brooks idea and the Stephen King ideas and some of the other ones that never came to pass. But the I, the concept, and I think that we're still going to see this in Walt Disney World someday, possibly with an Epcot Lagoon expansion, maybe in the future, where like California Adventure, like we see in some of the international parks, your hotel, your resort is not only very well themed, but has direct access to the parks. And I think the next phase of that is sort of what we're getting with the Halcyon, where your hotel is, your resort really is the themed attraction. And I think that's what these Hollywood style hotels look again, Noah, good idea for ideas. That's what these hotels were going to be. And that's what the the Star Wars hotel is going to, I think, be the ultimate realization of. Yeah, I think the Hollywood Horror Hotel just is such an interesting study just in the way ideas and imagineering can morph from one thing to another. And then also just there's so many stories around that hotel and and the attraction that when you have different teams working on the same project or even just people working on the same team, you know, you have ideas that maybe they each had and brought and no one was maybe necessarily privy to the entire conversation of what went on there. So when you, when you really dig deep into the Hollywood horror hotel, there's, you know, some Imagineers that'll tell you in depth about the hotel Mel uh, storyline and, and how they met with Mel Brooks. And, you know, there was going to be the possibility of this Castle Young Frankenstein walkthrough attraction. And then that shifts into, you know, you're going to audition for Mel Brooks. And it's kind of like a white or ride through attraction with these funny, you know, horror film characters. And there's some stories that Disney wanted more horror and thrill because there was a lack of that. There's other Imagineers who will tell you, no, that had nothing to do with it. We just, they wanted something to pair up with Mel Brooks. Um, you know, you can read stories that Mel helped uh, come up with the idea for a free falling elevator through kind of like a brainstorming session. There's others who say, no, that was already, you know, something that was in concept. So it's, it's just a very interesting thing. You know, I would encourage people if you want to know more about it, you know, dive into some of the videos that are out there on YouTube and see just the process that's involved with that, that you have all these different minds working on the same project and just creativity and, you know, meeting with different teams and, and how these different stories develop from, you know, into these attractions that we now have today. I, on a personal level, I absolutely Love, love, love Mel Brooks. I, I think his movies are some of the best that I have ever seen and, and rank very high on the top of my list. Would got to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with Mel Brooks. But imagine being a fly on the wall in that meeting between Imagineering and Mel Brooks as the ideas and that sort of free-flowing blue sky conversation just starts to happen and somebody feverishly scribbling down all these ideas that are, as they're sort of being um, bandied about the room would have been fascinating to to see and listen to. Um, but what else? So what other hotels and resorts were planned that maybe, which one, which of the next ones intrigues you personally the most? Uh, the one that I'm going to have to go to next is, uh, the one that I just, I still can't believe that this hasn't happened somewhere on property. Uh, I mean, I guess 
we got we've gotten close to it with the Riviera, but the Mediterranean resort, specifically a Grecian Mediterranean. And it's you know, it's been an idea that's been there since the beginning. It was on the original maps for Walt Disney World. And I had heard for years that the reason the Mediterranean resort did not happen in the 90s was because the ground wasn't stable enough. And I just recently saw that Bob Holland, who is vice president of resort development, says that site is buildable. He said they started moving dirt. And and again, with, you know, the economic downturn and this was supposed to be another high end resort. And and he even mentioned that as well. He said that location, which, you know, I need to clarify for anyone who may not know, it was going to be between the contemporary resort and the transportation and ticket center. and he said that location right there on the monorail, he said that almost demands something of the highest caliber because it's the last great location on the monorail beam. And, you know, it, it is kind of shocking to know that, that if it was buildable, that they haven't done anything with it. Um, but yeah, it was supposed to be a Mediterranean style, very Grecian. Um, the architect that was involved at the time was Anton uh, Predock, which you can go out and uh, Google search him. He has a, his architecture firm has a website and on there, there is uh, the model that he created for the Mediterranean resort. And with that, just a, a quote from his site, it says the hotel evokes the labyrinthine courtyards and sensual gardens of the Mediterranean, as well as the white architecture of the region, not as literal extrapolations, but as abstract readings. The site for the hotel along the edge of the lake is spectacular and the wings of the building reach out to embrace and capture part of the lake as a swimming area for guests, which obviously would not happen today and gesturing toward the magic kingdom beyond um looking at the model it, it looks like it would have been an ideal place for me as someone who uh hope greece is one of my bucket list places that i would love to visit and i just love the presence of water features uh water as a whole in the resorts and that was going to play a very large factor in this this resort. I mean, even so much that he mentions um, that, you know, the breezes from the lake, the water throughout the complex, that they hope that that would create kind of, even the sound of it would create a, you know, a backdrop that would mask the noise um, from other areas around it, that it would create kind of this, you know, cool, refreshing feeling throughout the resort. And I think the design aesthetic and theming would be so attractive and such a huge guest satisfier. And again, not to sort of, you know, go too deep into it. If you go back to show number 91, we did a, a complete episode about the lost resorts of the Magic Kingdom, including the Mediterranean, as well as the Asian, the Persian and the Venetian. And according to the 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 Disney report, they said this resort was going to have a thousand deluxe rooms on the southeast side of Seven Seas near Magic Kingdom Park, plus 65,000 suite of meeting and convention space, which uh, again is is was and will be again in very much high demand in Walt Disney World, inspired by the glamorous resorts of the Greek Isles, obviously also on the monorail system. This actually, the Mediterranean resort concept was the one that replaced the idea for the Venetian. And 
to your point about the sometimes discrepancies in terms of why they were never built, there were reports that land was cleared as early as 1990, but the survey tests and the legends of these, you know, putting in these huge pilings that just sunk and continued to sink until they reached the center of the earth uh, and were out of sight. In terms of, I don't think it's an insurmount, if it, even if that was true, and again, I'm not an engineer by any stretch of the imagination, but you would have to imagine that a lot of those um, um, potential issues and in terms of, of um, creating foundations that would, would work as much as they did for things like um, Spaceship Earth, where they had to sink pilings, you know, 80 feet into the ground, might be able to um, be overcome because you're right. It is still uh, a, a, the prime real estate, I think, in Walt Disney World in terms of location and monorail access views, etc. Um, and if you go back, I mean, there were even if you even look back at maps as as late as 1981, you would sometimes find a hotel meant called the Venetian or the Grand Venezia um, on some of those maps until the the idea sort of quietly just sort of faded away. Yeah, and I that's just a a concept for a resort, like I said, that just I I think could be absolutely incredible, beautiful, and yeah, I mean I hope that I've heard that there even were Venetian ideas thrown around up until the early two thousand. So maybe it's something that's not. Again, no good ideas ever dead at Imagineering. So maybe we'll see that at some point. And but now, another with the, with the internet being what it is, every time you see a construction vehicle or a dump truck around Magic Kingdom, the rumors swell up again that this is when you know the uh, the, the Mediterranean or the Venetian Resort is um, is under construction. People people with their helicopter images and yeah, it's wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking. Um, and then another resort that was planned there uh, for the Magic Kingdom area was the Kingdom Suites Hotel, which would have been 200 luxury units and it says would have been in harmony with the contemporary resort as it would have been located between the contemporary and the Magic Kingdom. So um, we can only assume it would have been something very similar to what we ended up with in the Bay Lake Tower today. You know, and there's not a lot that I was able to find in terms of research. And if you, the listener, knows more or has some sort of concept art and would like to share, I'd love to see it and, and share it as well. And like you said, it's it, in harmony with the Contemporary Resort, 200 suites. You wonder, is this something like Bay Lake Tower or was it meant to be something even more? Was it meant to be something that was more on a higher-end scale? I, I have to believe that going back a number of years, I think Disney has always realized that there is a segment of the population that is looking for a, a quote-unquote higher-end experience. It's why Grand Floridian was built. Look, it's why the Four Seasons came here. It's, it's a different sort of level of accommodations and service. And you wonder if those kingdom suites were meant to be something that either bridged that gap or was on a uh, a, a different level in terms of the types of accommodations that were going to be there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and a lot of people might question, you know, how much demand could there possibly be for that? But when you think about it, if it was going to be the highest end possible, that's only 200 units, you know, 
Right. You probably have 200 VIPs coming in there every week that could have filled that out. But yeah, it's interesting because when I initially read the name Kingdom Suites, my thought my thought immediately went to, oh, you know, could this have been something Fantasyland related? Because like that was, you know, the one. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you hear, you know, 200 luxury units, that doesn't necessarily make you think, you know, we're going to take our kids to the Fantasyland themed resort. I almost had there not been the the use of the words in harmony with the contemporary resort, I would have felt the exact same thing. Like you could do these incredibly well-themed rooms close to Magic Kingdom on the monorail line. People would gobble those up in a second. But I think they were going for a more luxury aspect, more attention to luxury as opposed to attention to theming. Yeah, can you imagine a resort filled with rooms that look like the Cinderella Castle suite? Yeah, and look, you know, certainly they're not for everybody, but there is, you know, a segment of the population that would gobble those up in a heartbeat. So, um, and I think the last one in terms of resort plans is also not far from Magic Kingdom, and it's gone by many names over the years, Um the Buffalo Junction Resort, the Wilderness Junction Resort. It is a 600-room hotel themed in the style of a Wild West town, which was going to be part of what they termed the second phase of the expansion of Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort. And it it would have been themed to the Old West, and there would have been horses on these sawdust streets, and there would have been a copy of the Buffalo Bill Wild West show from Disneyland Paris. And it wasn't until 1992, as a as a result of the National Recession, that this and some of the other projects were postponed indefinitely. So again, it's not the idea is not completely shuttered, but I don't necessarily think we're going to be seeing the exact um, realization of what this very, very deeply themed Wild West Resort was going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think you can kind of get a window into what this would have been like if you look up uh, the Hotel Cheyenne at Disneyland Paris, because they were both being developed at the same time. And um, at that time for Euro Disney, now now Disneyland Paris. And it it's still there today. And it does. It it looks like a Wild West town with just little individual storefronts, very similar to what you, you see in Frontierland. And um, from what I understand, they were also planning to move the uh, the Wilderness Campground train over there to this section that that would have been resurrected there, which now is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's actually the uh, the train that's used at Animal Kingdom. Is that correct? The, the train itself from for Refugees yeah Planet. yeah the actual yeah yeah, there's, yeah uh, there's so still spots of, of Wilderness Lodge and, and Fort Wilderness that you can walk by and still find little sections of the the train path and even some of the the um, the train rails that sort of literally sunk into the into the Florida um, swampland. But let's move from resorts over to attractions. And we'll, again, we'll sort of take this park by park and we'll go um, right from the Magic Kingdom resort line to the Magic Kingdom itself. And there was a number of very interesting, I think, and, and in some cases very 
time-specific attractions that were planned for the Disney decade. Uh, again, I, I'm going to let you go first, and I'm, I'd be fascinated to know which of the ones that that we know are on the drawing board might have piqued your interest for one reason or another most. I'm, I'm going to go for the big gun out of the gate and go Discovery Land USA. And I think, honestly, maybe we need to do a an entire unbuilt show on just discovery Bay and discovery land and what that became, because that is a whole backstory all on its own, but it's kind of fascinating to look at the discovery land story in the magic kingdom and how that came about out of the problem of the, the tomorrow land of tomorrow. How do you keep it relevant? And, you know, they had that same problem in Disneyland and Disney World at relatively the same time. And they were developing Disneyland Paris and and they had this, you know, older Discovery Bay concept that Tony Baxter had come up with for Disneyland, which would not have been a part of Tomorrowland. It just would have been toward the back of the park that, you know, they had, they had gone through the gold rush. And now these people have, you know, the gold rush money from big thunder mountain. And what do they do? They, they moved to San Francisco to this discovery Bay and, and you have kind of this, you know, ad- inventors paradise sort of situation. And you, you have the, the works of Jules Verne and HG Wells and, and the whole steampunk concept kind of influencing that discovery Bay. And that idea gives you the idea of a, future from the past that creates something that's timeless that that could almost solve the problem of Tomorrowland which if you you look at um, Tokyo Disney Sea and Disneyland Paris they kind of have done that they've, they've solved that problem of of keeping you know tomorrow relevant by looking at what did these people in the past think of tomorrow what did they see as far as you know inventions and what the future would be like and and so that idea kind of was looked at for the Magic Kingdom in combination almost with the idea for Disneyland at the time, which was Tomorrowland 2055. And they were going the route of this alien spaceport and what what that very sci-fi future would be like, which we know that's kind of what Tomorrowland 94 became in the Magic Kingdom. But the discovery land idea was almost going to combine those two things in that we're going to make this transition from main street into Tomorrowland, And we're going to make that a, a more easy transition by having uh, the astronomers club, which I know you've referenced before on the show and the audio guide and that you would have, you know, Galileo and Leonardo da Vinci and HG Wells and Jules Verne that would give you this Victorian feel as you head into Tomorrowland and how did they get there? Well, very next to that is the film Time to Time with the timekeeper, which we did ultimately get. And in, in that film, you see HG Wells and Jules Verne and they're, you know, they're brought through time. And, and then that would have led into a more sci-fi version of Tomorrowland in this, you, you know, new Discoveryland theming, which there is a model out there 
um, that you can see videos of. It was a model that was at the Walt Disney story at the Magic Kingdom in 1991. And it lists um, Flying Saucers Future Project, Kinetic Jets Future Project from time to time, Astronomers Club, Alien Encounter, and Autopia. And, you know, plug your ears if you love Carousel of Progress because they were going to take it out and replace it with Flying Saucers. But, but that was not the only idea they considered replacing it with at that point in time as well. So th thankfully, we did not get the full um, the full extent of Discovery Land of the Disney decade. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think we can talk more about what the, the plans were for Discovery Land, changes to Tomorrowland, what, what ended up happening, what was discussed, and what some of those future projects, you know, if you look at that model, there were other buildings there that just said future projects and sort of speculating as to what those were. I mean, I think if Carousel of Progress would have, if somebody would have said now that Carousel of Progress would go away, the internet would would rise in revolution. But you're right, we've talked about on the show, uh, on the blog about the Astronomers Club, which seemed to be, even if that full Discovery Land transformation didn't happen that seemed to be the thing that was a plane that was in flight and was going to happen where the the tomorrowland terrace slash noodle station currently sits and the idea of being that immersive theater like interactive show which eventually became something in a in a in a different sense in the adventures club would have been fascinating to see inside of uh, a theme park and what that would have become. And again, I, that could be a separate conversation, possibly for a separate show, because that really would have completely changed. You know, we're talking about individual attractions here and there, but that really would have changed the entire theming and story of an entire land. And and I know a lot of people dig that steampunk-like aesthetic and, and reference to that time period. And it, I wonder how well or poorly that might have been received and then why that never came to be. Uh, there were other individual attractions that were going to be possibly plugged into um, uh, Magic Kingdom, one of which would be a new Circle Vision 360 adventure in 1994, which would have surrounded you literally with the wonders and cultures of Western civilization. And it would have been called aptly enough, the wonders of Western civilization, <laughs> which was supposed to be added to magic kingdom by 1992. Not sure exactly where this would have gone and really, you know, how well, and here's maybe a question, you know, would an additional, Circle Vision 360 film in 2021, would that still be as big of a guest attractor and or satisfier? Like, are kids going, oh my God, we've got to go see Wonders of Western Civilization? Is that the, is that what is, what guests in, in, in this time are, are looking for? Yeah. And I almost wonder with that, like, was that a, you know, kind of like what we talked about with the Hotel Mel, Tower of Terror, you know, different projects at different times like was that an initial idea and then they pivoted to you know the timekeeper or was this in addition to you know like you say like would there have been two circle vision I mean I know circle vision was a very popular thing at that point in time um, I agree with you I don't know that it would be a major attractor today 
Um, the only thing about I, the release that that is intriguing is where it says that sophisticated audio animatronic characters will disappear into the film at key points, blurring the line between fantasy and reality. So it makes me believe that there was a, a new special effect or technology that they wanted to demonstrate, and this maybe be the showcase for that. True. And I do, I'm trying to remember, obviously it's been a long time since I was on Timekeeper, but there was there an animatronic of Nine-Eye that we saw initially like when you would go in and and like time kind of almost in the pre-show like i mean it wasn't really like a separate pre-show but you would walk in and timekeeper would kind of be there talking and tinkering and things before the show initially started i feel like there was a nine eye animatronic that you would see and then like at some point she would go away and then it was like you were in nine eye maybe i do remember i do remember seeing nine eye and nine eye almost looked like She's hard to describe. Imagine something almost like in the shape of a balloon, but there were sort of like these these individual little spheres sort of circling around it with these um, um, things that were sort of connected to a base, almost like a like a hot air balloon. I do remember, and I'm trying to remember exactly where in the attraction it was. I I want to say she either came up or appeared next to the timekeeper, the Robin Williams animatronic itself. But my memories of that attraction are obviously somewhat blurry. Yeah. That's what I feel like too. I, I, we love, my family loved that attraction. It was like a love hate relationship. We loved the timekeeper. Um, but several of us in my family struggled with motion sickness. So <laughs> it was, it was a little difficult, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we obviously we ended up with that one, but another um, attraction that's listed in that expansion projects document is Plek 2's Fantastic Galactic Review, which I was so glad I found that in that document because in doing research, it looked it seemed to be that that was only planned for Disneyland. But then when I saw this, I was like, oh, okay, this this was a Disney World thing. But again, you know, if you love Carousel of Progress, <laughs> watch out because Plek 2 is coming for it. Um, because it would have been in that circular theater and in each of those different scenes, there would have been different alien music, musical review going on, different aliens performing at each station. And, you know, I almost kind of wonder listening to that, did that inform on sunny eclipse then later on, Mm -hmm. you know, like we, the opt away from this more animatronic heavy development possibly a lot more expensive because of the number of animatronics to just one animatronic, you know, putting on the show there in cosmic rays. You know, Plectus is interesting because there's not, there's not a lot out there about it. um, Other than I, I only was able to find one piece of concept art and very few snippets in terms of what it was supposed to be. But this idea of this outer space musical variety review featuring a troupe of audio animatronic in, in, in alien musicians whose spaceship has landed in Tomorrowland. I sort of have this vision married with the concept art of the mothership from Close Encounters of the Third Kind 
landing in Tomorrowland and sort of taking over what looks like the exterior of the Carousel of Progress. And again, you wonder about... and. It's funny because if you read some of the the comments, you'll see some people say, unfortunately, this never came to be, while others say, fortunately, this never came to be, because you wonder about the longevity of an attraction like this. The audio-animatronic alien musical review in 2021 might not seem as attractive or nostalgic as the Carousel of Progress does, and as a as a the nostalgic that I am, you know, certainly I never want to see Carousel of Progress touched. I don't know that this is where I would have wanted to have put that show. Yeah, and it is kind of interesting to think about, too, that in Disneyland, they plan to put it um, into what was their Carousel of Progress theater, then from what I understand became America Sings. And I don't know the specific reason that America Sings closed, but I... I mean, I would imagine that it was maybe just less popular with guests at that point. Um, otherwise, why would you, you know, abandon all of those different animatronics and the investment in that? So it's it's funny to me that the concept that they come with to replace that is also a lot of singing animatronics. Mm-hmm. Um, and and perhaps maybe someone brought that to their attention. They're like, you know, why are we going with the same type of idea? But yeah, it looked to be that, you know, Disney World would have gotten this because Disneyland was getting it. Yeah, but it made yeah. Me, in the brief description that we get, it made me think of um, like a show like Food Rocks, which at the time was like, oh, this is great, singing fruit and singing food. and But again, the um, the longevity of something like that, I don't necessarily think might have lasted and and maybe that's why the idea and poor Plectu was abandoned. Yeah. I mean, the Tomorrowland of 94 is very interesting because I, you know, you saying that about food rocks, I was at the right age for food rocks. So I have fond memories of food rocks and, you know, saying that maybe I would have also had fond memories of Plectu's. I have, I have fond memories of galaxy search that was there at the time. So, um, and, really looking back at it, like as I was going over this, I have fond memories in general of Tomorrowland 94 and that whole industrial alien spaceport. You know, I remember the first time we walked in there um, at nighttime and saw all of that, the the lights and the kinetics. And it, it really did make you feel like you had gone somewhere else. And looking back now after doing this research and seeing that it, that almost kind of was, I mean, not subpar, but, but as a sub version of what they were initially planning. But to me, it didn't feel that way at all. Mm. You know, I don't know what you remember of it, but I, I thought it was fantastic. Now, you know, 20 years down the road, obviously we're, you know, we're looking at something even greater with new technologies and new opportunities with the Tron coaster and everything. But at the time I, you know, I thought it was an amazing finished product. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting. Uh, just an overall discussion of Tomorrowland. It's it it's flawed in its nomenclature, right? Because anytime you talk about Tomorrowland, it's going to conjure up different ideas. Is this supposed to be a World's Fair type view of what's really coming tomorrow? Is it a fantasy type story about you know? 
Jules Verne type or, or futuristic stories of of aliens. You know, what is Tomorrowland supposed to be and what does it represent? And the idea of what they did in, in 94 with New Tomorrowland, where science fiction was supposed to replace that sense of realistic views into the future is what we ended up getting, right, with this inter- intergalactic spaceport for us and aliens coming in and out. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I think Tomorrowland's always going to be in that constant state of flux, although maybe now what we're seeing with the introduction of, look, I think that that the introduction of Tron now is going to usher in a new era for Tomorrowland itself and other attractions and theming overlays that I expect we're going to get over the next five to 10 years. Definitely. So the other thing I would mention about, and we can sort of lump these in together for Magic Kingdom, was a focus and emphasis on a number of different type of shows that were, were going to be coming in. Not just the audio animatronic Plectus fantastic intergalactic review, but there was a new character stage show planned for Mickey's Birthday Land. There was also going to be a new musical show to debut in 1991, built around music from the Disney classics, including Snow White and Seven uh, and Peter Pan. Um, I think there was a, there was oh there was also the, the Mouseketeer Music Blast, which may or may not have been the same show, but this was going to feature music from the Mickey Mouse Club, which was on the air um, going back to you know. I guess, early 1989. And I think this was going to sort of bring what kids were seeing on TV into the parks uh, because the the new Mickey Mouse Club was was meant to be this, this and maybe it was for some people, this um, relaunch of that brand and bringing their music and their... Um, their um, Disney Channel stars from TV into the parks. Yeah, I mean this the the shows that were planned uh, during this time frame are about as '90s as it gets, uh, <laughs> and they were definitely targeted toward Little Kendall because a Little Mermaid show in Mickey Starland. From what I understand, that was one of them. I mean, Little Mermaid was the first movie that I saw in the theater. That I mean. You know, at this point, there was no Voyage of the Little Mermaid over it at MGM. So this would have been the only Little Mermaid thing there was. I mean, I think that would have definitely been successful at that point in time. And then you mentioned Mouseketeer Music Blast. Um, We were fans of the, the new Mickey Mouse Club. We had the album on cassette tape that came out in 1993. So... Yeah, and then uh, one of the shows that you did get during that time frame that fits that same theming is the Disney Afternoon Show. Uh, so, yeah, definitely trying to to capitalize on what was new, some synergy there going on with the Disney Channel, and um, and and I think trying to, you know, you can't always put together an attraction really quick on the fly for what's big and what's popular at the time. So these shows, they probably could put together a lot more quickly, you know, to, to help deal with the popularity of little mermaid and some of the things on the Disney channel. Yeah. And we were all supposed to get a version of the Tokyo Disneyland one man's dream show in Tomorrowland at the old, remember, remember the old Tomorrowland theater was the galaxy palace theater 
which would have occasional live entertainment acts, most notably during uh, Christmas parties. For example, they would have, I think it was like Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas show was in there too. But they were supposed to do a salute to 65 years of musical highlights from um, some of the animated features as well um, in that theater throughout the day. And I know, again, we've, we've, there's been a number of different shows that came in and out, but I don't think One Man's Dream was ever specifically one that came in. I don't think it was either, but I do remember, um, I have photos of the stage show, the castle stage show, which sounds like it probably the one that, that you all, that they ultimately got. And, you know, and I don't know if it was 91 or 92, what trip that was that we were on, but it, it had a lot of those classic Disney songs, not necessarily some of the ones that are listed for the one man's dream, you know, Lady and the Tramp and Jungle Book. But I, I definitely remember there was, um, a segment with Cruella DeVille. And so it was, it was very much the Disney songbook. So, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they just chose a slightly different take on the show. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you look through the list of magic kingdom additions that were supposed to come in the Disney decade, they're all pretty much, you know, show based. We're not seeing anything in terms of a new, ride system, a, a a huge update to an existing ride attraction. There was there was supposed to be a Little Mermaid attraction that debuted in the early 90s that we obviously didn't get until the voyage of uh, the under under the sea voyage of Little Mermaid attraction um years later, but there was this sort of of, of focus on show-based attractions as opposed to ride-based attractions. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think just the one major attraction that we get during the 90s at the Magic Kingdom is Splash Mountain. You know, and and that probably was taking a lot of funding, right? I would imagine. So they, you know, it probably is why a lot of it aimed toward the show-based attractions. Well, and maybe too, and this might be a good transition, some of the focus and some of the dollars were heading towards Epcot Center um, and the idea of updating Future World and some of the other parks and and enhancing, according to the release, enhancements moving Future World into the 21st century will begin with its major pavilions presented by outstanding American corporations in 1992 during the 10th anniversary of Epcot Center. So there was this focus on the future literally and figuratively in terms of where Disney was investing their time, their resources and their dollars. And there were some very intriguing things that were coming to Epcot that never came to be, might possibly uh, never come to be. We did get things, you know, like Captain EO, which was part of that announcement, but there were also pavilions that were planned for World Showcase as well as something new coming into Future World as well, which I don't think a lot of people necessarily know about. They might know about in terms of theming, but not necessarily in specific concept. Yeah, you really have to dig the depths of the internet to find information on the the uh, space pavilion 
And it, it went through several iterations, different names. There's, there's Journeys in Space, Journey into Space. Um, but the one that we have the most information on is a journey to imagined realities, Epcot Space. And um, there's a lot of information because there is a master plan that, you know, that's how far that development went was to the point of having a, you know, a multiple, multiple page master plan on this attraction that was released in 1996 for, and it was intended for a summer 1999 opening. And um, the theme of it was that which you think becomes your world. And it, it was a space attraction, but not in the sense that miss, Mission Space is a space attraction. Um, mission Space is is focusing primarily on the space travel, whereas this attraction seems like it would have been focused more on almost the physics of space, the the expansiveness of the universe. And which I think is kind of an interesting idea. Um, when you look through what's in the master plan, it lends itself to to that uh, Epcot trippiness that you get with some of those older attractions. Um, and this would have been uh, built in place of Horizons, as you know, Mission Space is today. But they would have kept that same building. Uh, exterior, except they would have extended the sides down. So instead of, you know, that classic silhouette that you see with horizons, it would have looked more like a pyramid, which was kind of supposed to evoke, you know, the idea of the pyramids being aligned with space and, um, and some of the constellations and things. And there was a heavy focus on the, the spacecraft Voyager with this attraction that and this is one of the things I thought was very interesting. Several places throughout it, they were going to have, you know, up to the the minute potentially images from Voyager, whether it was in the queue or in parts of the attraction. That they wanted that to be as up to date as possible. But the initial, the, it was going to be an attraction in two parts. And another thing I find really fascinating about this is, as we're talking about it. You know, for listeners, you're going to hear a lot of um, bits and pieces that led to attractions that did come to be, you know, kind of this whole idea of what is an unbuilt attraction. Maybe this didn't get built in the exact uh, idea that they came up with, but you can definitely see where this idea did not die. It, it influenced several other attractions and concepts later on down the road. Um the, the first portion, it, it was going to be a ride system in two parts. And the first portion was going to be, you know, 10 minutes long. And it was going to continue to use that same Horizons uh, uh, ride system, which I, I might defer to you on this. I, I had not, I, I'm sure that I did not ride Horizons as many times as you did. We, I, I, I came in on the tail end of it. And I did, I was someone who loved it, but I, I will let you give the horizons description. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm sure I'll, I'll pull up the the exact number. We did a, a retrospective on horizons, but it was, it was this wonderful Omni mover type system that had, that was plussed because you, it was literally a choose your own ending type attraction where at one point during the, the, the third act of the attraction, you were, 
the inside of your Omnivore vehicle, a, a screen lit up and you could basically the people who were in there could almost vote if you wanted land, sea or space as what your finale scene was going to be. And, um, you know, again, without going to a, a deep discussion on Horizons and why it ended up going away, it's it's one of the ones that I think people clamor for most now, but was not necessarily when it went away was was the most popular attraction in the park, which is why it, it was uh, I don't want to say short lived, but why it ended up going away. But there, but you're right. There was always I mean, even going back to the 70s, there was always a discussion about having a space themed pavilion and just what that look and felt like and where it was going to be changed a number of times over the years. Yeah, so that, I mean, Horizons did include a lot of animatronics. And from what I understand, this portion that they were going to maintain, I don't think it was going to be that portion of the attraction. I think it was going to be the portion that I, I believe, if I remember correctly, the the Omnimover, while it didn't dangle, it almost made you feel that it did toward the end of the attraction because of the domed screen that you kind of were almost set into. And I think from what I understand, that would have been the portion that they maintained. And in there, it would have had a very uh, Spaceship Earth, World of Motion type feel where you're moving through history of how did man approach and discover science. And you would have moved through kind of four different acts where we imagined what science was with our tool of the mind. We Then we saw what science was via the telescope. Then we went to science with the rocket. And then finally, we reached further in, or not in, we didn't go, we didn't went to science, we went to space. Sorry. We went to space with the rocket. And then we reached further into space with Voyager. And um, these would have all been projections on that domed screen that you moved through. And then you would have exited that portion of the attraction and moved into um, kind of a queuing area where you would have seen images from Voyager on screens. There would have been a large counter that would have said how far Voyager had traveled into space. And then you would have boarded these capsule elevators. And it, you think of a transition point kind of like the old hydrolators from the living seas, only in this instance, these would have actually been elevators that the, that you would have you know, needed to transfer into the to the next portion of the attraction. So again, think along the lines today of the Space 220 restaurant where you you get in there and they would have made you feel that you were traveling up into space. And when you got off, you would have looked, it would have looked like you were at this kind of more fantastical version of a space station. And um, the next portion of the ride is where it moves into more of a thrill-based type attraction, and they they were actually going to get input from, you know, great thinkers like Stephen Hawking, from creatives like George Lucas, and they they mention even you know from children because this portion of the attraction attraction was supposed to be speculative, of you know what what is the universe. And they felt like, you know, sometimes children can speculate on things in ways that we can't. So they even wanted, you know, they wanted input from the mind of a child all the way up to the mind of Stephen Hawking. And this is where it gets really interesting. This 
thing called the speculator. And I'm not exactly sure how they would have loaded people into this, but it's a large vertical platform with, um, from what I can tell in the concept art, looks almost like rows of, you know, kind of like, a, you know, the platform of a fire escape. So rows like that, and they would have each had little vertical platforms that you would have leaned against with handholds. And so you have, you know, I don't remember if it was eight, you know, seven to eight rows of people on this vertical platform. And the platform would have been attached to an armature that would have been able to tip the entire platform, rotate the entire platform. And then the individual rows that people were in would have also been able to tip up to 25 degrees. So again, you can see how this these ideas potentially informed on things like Soren, like Flight of Passage, especially because this would have moved into a large domed screen, exactly what like what those attractions utilize. And it would have taken you through a, a six minute uh, film, basically. And it would have had six different parts to it. Um, things may not be what they seem, a head full throttle, cities among the stars, we are not alone, faster than the speed of light, and inside the mind's eye. And the very first portion of that would have just been, you would have been stationary, you would have been watching that first minute worth, and then when you get to that a head full throttle, they would have they would have tipped the platform, you know, they would have tipped your individual row, so you feel like you are moving through space. And the image is on the screen, this goes back to what I mentioned about it kind of focusing more on this idea of the physics of space, they would have started you out in what looked like a universe, but actually you were seeing something kind of more at the microscope cellular level. And they would have backed you out until you saw that, you know, this was a human eye. And then here's the, you know, the child, and then the child's at a, you know, a park or a playground. And now we've moved out to seeing the earth. And then now we're out in the outer reaches of space and kind of just imagine the the feeling of that of of viewing that on a large screen like Soren and seeing that zoom out and you being able to tip and rotate into that image this would have definitely been a, a very immersive thrilling experience and nothing like what we even have now like you said part of the ride system we do see inspiring things like flight of passage but the whole journey, the whole space pavilion and the journey into space concept is fascinating on many levels. And actually, if you go back to show 552, we talk a little bit about this in our Disney and space discussion. where We talk also about a lot of movies and shorts as well as how they influenced the theme parks as well. But the idea of the space pavilion, um, it, although the name had changed a number of times, goes back to the 70s, um, where it was just going to be called the Space Pavilion, and it was actually supposed to sit where the Living Seas was, and the exterior aesthetic was very different. It almost looked like a if Horizons and Space Mountain had a baby and put a giant launch platform on top, that's sort of what it, it would have felt like, but it would have had those, omni like you said, the Omnimover and the Omnimax screen and all of those rotating walls. And there was a lot of progress that was made 
on this, going back to the 1977 annual report where it talked about this huge interstellar space vehicle transporting passengers from the outer frontiers of the universe, highlighting efforts to reach out for the stars around them from early pioneers to modern day space travelers, et cetera, et cetera. And the script writer for this was going to be Ray Bradbury. And there's an image of Ray Bradbury and John DeCure looking at a model of this very interesting, unique ride vehicle, which sounds like it was partially incorporated into some of the later iterations, that 1980s journey into space where it would now move from where the seas was to sort of in between the area with the land and seas, having this this rocket on top and this combination of a walkthrough attraction and an omnimover attraction and this centrifuge type attraction before they start looking to abandon this idea, um, um, possibly updating horizons at some point and then uh, then completely gutting and demolishing the building and replacing it with um with mission space but this the 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 evolution of what this was going to be and and why some of the reasons why it didn't happen so part of my understanding of why the original late 70s ray bradbury pavilion happened was funding Um, they could not find a corporate sponsor although obviously disney and and nasa have had a a long time uh, and an ongoing relationship going back many many years but it's it's fascinating to me how this concept continues to and continue to sort of come up and and while some few elements remained so much of it had changed for one reason or another yeah and you mentioned the idea of a sponsorship in this master plan for this version of the attraction, they mentioned JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, several times in there. So it does make you wonder if maybe they were going to try to pursue some type of at least development partnership there with them, if not some type of, you know, sponsorship sort of situation or, you know, mutual, you know, benefit type thing. And the attraction itself is fascinating because, it sounds like it's in part a thrill ride, which in in some people's minds, Epcot needed slash desperately needed in during this time frame, uh, especially with the, um, the this incredible excitement over, you know, 80s, 90s space and space travel and Star Wars and Star Trek and everything that that were that was so very popular while still trying to make something that was going to be interesting and accessible to as many guests as possible. Yeah. And I think we're going to see that thrill concept come up a lot with Epcot that that was, you know, I mean, obviously they, they viewed it as a need because it, it comes up if, if you're ready to move on from the space concept, yeah. it comes up again. Um, Epcot definitely Look, the, the word that was used to describe Epcot, let's not mix words was boring. You know, a lot of kids would go and they felt I'm not here to learn. I don't want to go you know, and learn. I want to come here and experience some of the thrills that I get either in magic kingdom or in my hometown amusement park. And I think Disney obviously listened. They didn't actually yeah, build it. They didn't build it, but they, <laughs> they, they tried. Um, yeah, because we can move over to World Showcase, where one of the big thrill rides, which I, I know. 
That concludes part one of our look at the unrealized attractions from the Disney decade at Walt Disney World. Stay tuned next week for part two as we continue on through World Showcase over to Disney's Hollywood Studios, as well as outside the park for some concepts that you might never believe were actually ever on the drawing board and one you probably never heard of before, but might just wish it comes to pass in one form or another. In the meantime, come to the WW Radio Clubhouse on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse to talk about this week's episode and share your thoughts and concepts about what we've talked about so far. It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you can pay attention to the details of what you see, hear, or remember. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. This week's trivia challenge is brought to you by our friends at fun.com for the best selection of Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars gifts, clothing, toys, and collectible for you, your home, or your office. Great prices, amazing selection, and super fast delivery. And if you visit www.radio.com slash fun, you'll save 15% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter. Again, www.radio.com slash fun. Now, before we get to this week's trivia question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I asked you to tell me what is the name of that adorable little bird in Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway that sings and dances throughout the attraction. First, thanks to the hundreds of you who entered, got this one correct, and know that that cute little bird is not the orange bird. It's an orange bird. It's not the orange bird. It's Chuby, C-H-U-U-B-Y. He is a character that was created exclusively for the attraction, and you can find him singing and dancing throughout Runamuck Park, if you know exactly where to look. Anyway, I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were playing for a brand new WW Radio pin and keychain. These are only available as contest prizes. These are new designs. Unlike traditional enamel pins, these are acrylic, full color, only available, like I said, as contest prizes. And who knows, maybe I'll even throw in a little bonus surprise prize in there as well. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Walter Songer. So, Walter, congratulations. Actually, Walter said, his name is Chuby. We love this little guy. We have his plush iPhone case, Magic Band. We basically have a Chuby edition in the household. I dig it. I love it. Walter, I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So as long as we are talking about unrealized attractions and lost concepts, I don't really think that there was enough food in our conversation or Muppets. So tell me, what was the name, the original name, of the unrealized Muppet-themed restaurant that was supposed to come to Walt Disney World, I'll give you a hint, at Disney's Hollywood slash MGM Studios. What was the original name of the unrealized Muppet-themed restaurant that was supposed to come to Walt Disney World? You have until Sunday, May 9th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, use the form there. Again, you're going to play for the brand new pin and keychain. So good luck and have fun. (laughs) 
That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I sincerely appreciate you spending and sharing your time with me. Please continue to be part of the conversation and community by joining the WW Radio Clubhouse at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. That is our fun, family-friendly, very welcoming group over on Facebook. You can also connect with me elsewhere on social. I am at Lou Mangello on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest. You can also email me if you have a question you'd like me to answer on the show, lou at www.radio.com, or call the voicemail we heard on the air at 407-900-9391. You can actually weigh in. Let me know what piqued your interest from what we discussed so far on this week's show in terms of lost attractions from the Disney decade. In addition to the podcast, please join me this and every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WW Radio Live. It's my live video broadcast and chat on Facebook and on YouTube where we talk not just about this week's podcast, but my top five live where you are part of creating the list, my Disney Plus pick of the week. Now that we're finished with Falcon and Winter Soldier, I have a new pick of the week that we can talk about this and next week. The show is completely interactive where I take not just your questions, but I'll also have a 20 questions contest with prizes as well. You can find the show this and every week, 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com. Again, on Facebook and on YouTube. Make sure you turn on notifications on the WW Radio page and group on Facebook so you don't miss a thing. Also, speaking of Facebook, join our spoiler support group where we talk not just about spoilers from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but other things happening on Disney and in Marvel and on Disney+. Plus. You can join that by going to www.radio.com slash spoilers. Speaking of joining and being part of the community and friendship, thank you to everybody who is part of the Nation family. I appreciate your love, support, and help, and I love being able to give back to you each and every month with monthly scavenger hunts and trivia quests as well as care packages from Walt Disney World. I want to thank some new and longtime members, including John Moran, Jacob Ahn, Wesleyan Banks, Ray Sharpton, and Lucas Daniels. If you want to find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar a month, and by doing so, help our Dream Team project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America, you can go to www.radio.com support. I also want to be able to help support you. So if there's some way that I can help you through one-on-one mentoring or small group coaching, as well as my momentum conference and retreat, which I am planning on bringing back as soon as possible, you can visit loumangelo.com, find out how we might be able to work together. Thanks. Speaking of working together, thanks as always to my partner and sponsor and friend, Becky Mankin and the entire team over at Mouse Fan Travel. Whether you're planning your next trip to a Disney destination or anywhere on this planet, Becky and her team of agents will give you the best possible prices, all available discounts, all at no cost to you, most importantly, with an incredible level of personal service. Of course, you can find them over at mousefantravel.com. Tell them Lou sent you. And if you're looking for some WW Radio logo gear for your next trip to a Disney destination or just to wear around the house or neighborhood, you can visit www.radio.com slash shirts. We have a ton of logo gear there, as well as designs inspired by Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars. And finally, most importantly, thank you, thank you, thank you. And all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let someone else know that you are listening and that they should listen to by tweeting out a link to this week's show, sharing it on your profile or through a group over on Facebook. And if you can, it's really important. Take just a couple of seconds as soon as you're done listening this week to go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the show there. It is super helpful. Takes just a couple of seconds. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Sam Bright Smile, who said, I'm a new listener and I feel like I've been looking like something like this forever. And to be honest, I feel a little silly for missing it for so long. As a longtime Disney fan, I immediately fell in love with the podcast. 
You're so passionate, like me, and have such a kind soul. Thank you. I love listening to you describe things, and it really transports me to my favorite place, even if I'm just at work or on my long commute. Thanks for everything you've done for so long. I'm tickled that I have so many episodes to go back and listen to. I just re- finished the resort report about the Riviera and made me so excited for our stay there in February for our anniversary. Congratulations. We got to visit last year right before COVID. It's to die for, and we cannot wait to be there. Listening to you talk about it just made me even more excited, and it made my day. Can't wait for the Disney World content to continue. Sam Bright Smile, you made my day, my friend. Thank you very much for reviewing the show. If you want to leave a review, and I will, of course, read it on the air, you can just search for WW Radio and Apple Podcasts, or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes. It'll give you a direct link and instructions on where to do it. Finally, most importantly, Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am giving you a virtual, physically distant hug and handshake because I am so grateful for the opportunity to share my passion for Disney with you and the time that you spend with me. And look, I think that now more than ever, there is just so much, not just in Disney, but just so much in general to be happy for and thankful for. And and there's so much out there that, that focuses on the negative. And I just love talking about the things with you that make us happy about going to Walt Disney World. And it just, it's part of who I am and my choice to choose the good and find the good in everything that I do and encounter and and try and impart that good and positivity on others. And I hope that you choose the good and find the good and be the good for others as well. I promise you that positivity is, is contagious and will make you feel even better if you can do something to make somebody's day a little bit brighter. And if we all did that a little bit, man, I think this world will be a much, much better place. So it's up to you to choose the good and find the good in everything that you do. I know that might sound silly and it has nothing to do with Disney to a certain degree, but I do this show because I not only want to share my passion for Disney, but find something that's going to hopefully make you smile throughout the day and uh, bring a little bit of brightness to your week. And I think maybe choose the good is sort of a direct extension of that. So anyway, I hope that this truly is your best week ever. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If there's something I could ever do for you to help you to repay your kindness and your generosity, please reach out and let me know. I hope to see you on the live show Wednesday night in the clubhouse on Facebook. So until next time, I love you. I appreciate you. See ya. And because we're friends and the show is about more than quote unquote just Disney, This Sunday, May 9th, is Mother's Day. And whether you are a mom, you want to be one, if you're a dad, an aunt, an uncle, a sister, a mothering figure to someone that you love, I want to sincerely wish you Happy Mother's Day. Uh, I lost my mom this past year, and and this Mother's Day is going to be different and special in, 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 in a way that I'm not sure I know how to deal with just yet. And... If you still are fortunate enough to have your mom or that person that is a mother figure for you, show her extra love this year, um, as you should every single day. We don't need a Mother's Day to celebrate our mothers and the people who have been mothering towards us uh, because we don't know how long we're going to have them in our lives. And I don't want this to sound sappy or preachy, although I guess it probably does. But uh, go give that person, go give your mom an extra hug, an extra thanks, and an extra I love you this week. No matter what they say, you'll be here in my heart.
Hey, Lou, this is Jim Smith calling from Hanover, Mass. I just got home from my first COVID vaccine shot and uh, took the 15 minutes that they, they ask you to stay there after your shot and uh, make sure you're feeling well. Thankfully, I am. I uh, took that 15 minutes to reflect on uh, the last year or so of COVID. And one thing that keeps coming up is the the, the positivity and the, uh, and the, the, the good feelings that come out of your show and out of our clubhouse, uh, all the wonderful people that have, have grown to live here along with me and, uh, and, and have fun with you every week. It's something that, uh, that did give me something to look forward to every week. And, uh, I very much enjoyed that. Um, appreciate all that you give to us, and I also appreciate all that everyone in the group gives to each other. Uh, I'm a part of, of the clubhouse, obviously. I'm a part of the uh, the running team recently. I'm part of the spoiler support group, and, and they're all they're all great fun, and they all have their own unique uh, personalities. And, and I'm happy and proud to be a piece of each one of them. Uh, so keep up the good work, Lou. Thank you for making everyone's day just a little bit better. And uh, God bless, take care, and hope to see you soon. Bye.